1 John chapter 4. We have been in 1 John chapter 4 looking at love for several weeks. And if you would just stand with me if you're, an, if you're able to in honor of God as we read. We're going to read three verses here together as John continues to talk about love and its source and its witness and the confidence we can have. And then he says this in verse 19. We'll finish up the chapter this morning. Lord willing, he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. May God encourage you through his word this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we now are able to, to turn our attention to more closely to study in more detail. But Father, we thank you for the truths from your word that have been proclaimed in this service already as we've, we've sung songs about your redemptive work and your power in our lives. And we thank you for the way your word was proclaimed and, and, and testified to during our baptismal service earlier and just all the ways in which you have drawn people to yourself through the work of your Holy Spirit as they've, they've trusted in your son Jesus Christ for their salvation. And, and we pray that that would continue to bear fruit in our worship this morning. We thank you for this text that tells us about your love and, and its, its effect in our lives and the absolute necessity that love is in the life of a believer. pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me spend just a few minutes doing a, a little bit of a review. John is going to be sharing some things in the verses we're looking at this morning that are familiar to us. He's not going to introduce any new themes that we haven't covered already in the book of First John. But, but maybe uh, some of you are with us for the first time, or you ha- you've only been here for a couple Sundays, or maybe you've slept since last week and you don't quite remember everything that's happened since we began this series in First John. So let me just spend a few minutes talking with you about the context of First John and how these verses, verses 19, 20, and 21 in First John chapter 4, serve as, as part of a, kind of a, John's larger statement that he's making in this epistle, in this letter to these believers in Asia Minor at, toward the end of the first century. Remember the purpose of John's book. As you go to, to chapter 1 of 1 John, uh, John says, Look, uh, the things that we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you, this is verse 3, so that, this is why we're proclaiming these things to you, we're, we're writing these things so that you too may have fellowship. What kind of fellowship? Fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing th- these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, Look, um, I want you to have relationship and fellowship with us. And and really, when I say that I want us to be in right fellowship, what I'm saying is our fellowship is with God. And so I want you to be in right fellowship with God and with other believers. And what was the problem that existed in that fellowship? There had been teachers who had come into the churches there in Asia Minor that John, this older pastor, is writing to. And these 
these individuals had drawn people away from the church, and they told them about this, this secret knowledge that they could have, and they began teaching them wrong things about who Jesus is, and wrong things about sin, and wrong things about the lifestyle that believers are supposed to live. And the people who remained in the church are now questioning, did, were we right? Were these false teachers right? How do we know, John, they're asking this, this wise pastor, this apostle, John, how do we know that we're really in fellowship with God? And, and how do we really know that this fellowship is the right fellowship? And John says, look, I'm going to write to you and I'm going to tell you how you can know that you have fellowship with us and fellowship with God. And that's what he's talking about. And in this epistle, he's going to tell them about the false teachers and antichrists and and those sorts of things and love of the world and love of God. But there are kind of three things, three themes that are going to come up again and again in the epistle. Three tests of fellowship, three tests that these believers can give themselves to know whether or not they are in right fellowship with God and in right fellowship with one another. And the first test is what? The what test? That's right. I'm going to say that's right no matter what. I'm going to assume someone said it. What, what, what's the first test? The truth test. That's right. <laughs> the truth test. And the truth test, in the truth test, we're saying, okay, there are certain things about who Jesus is that we have to believe. There's some truths about who Jesus is and how sin is dealt with. And if we are wrong on who Jesus is or we're wrong about our understanding of of his work, then we're not in right fellowship with God. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. These false teachers are denying the deity of Jesus. They're denying his full humanity. And so because they're denying his full deity and full humanity, they, they failed the truth test. The believer, the person who's in right fellowship with God, passes the truth test. The second test is what? The, that's right, the obedience test. <laughs> I'm sure someone said it somewhere in here. The obedience test. The obedience test is a, is a test that we give ourselves to say, okay, is my life reflecting the obedience that a person who says they are a follower of Jesus Christ is supposed to have? If I have believed in Jesus Christ, there are going to be things about my life that, are, that change. There's going to be a, a life that reflects a, a transformed heart. A person who, who lives in perpetual disobedience to God is a person who has failed the truth test. They are not in right relationship with God. They're not in right relationship with other believers. And by the way, as we've talked about before, these tests aren't like a multiple choice tests or a true false test. There's not a Scantron and a number two pencil you use to take these tests. They're not that type of test. You don't have to get a 70% or above to say, okay, I've passed and now I know I'm in right relationship with God. When I say these are tests, what I mean is that John is giving us some characteristics of our relationship with God by which we test ourselves. And if these things are true, then we know that we're in right relationship with God. If these things are not true, then we come to the conclusion We're not in right relationship with God. So there's a a truth test. There are doctrines about Jesus that I have to believe in order to be in right relationship with God. And then when I come into right relationship with God, there's going to be obedience that manifests itself in my life. And then the third test that we've been talking about a lot, the word is on the, the screen back behind you. We can all say it together. The third test is what kind of test? The love test. Yes. Um, I definitely heard it that time. This love test 
is a test that we've encountered several times throughout the gospel or throughout the, this uh, first epistle of John. So, for example, there's kind of three main sections. Again, it occurs throughout, but, but three main sections that it occurs in. Uh, one would be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, where John explains the love test, and then he kind of gives an illustration of the love test. He comes to the end of, of uh, this section of 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. It says in verse 10, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do you want to know whether or not you're in right relationship with God? Well, look at the love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's no love that you have for others, John says, look, man, you, you failed the love test. You're stumbling in darkness. Your heart has not been transformed by the truth of the gospel you're not in fellowship with God. You're not in fellowship with others. So that's 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, kind of when we're introduced to the love test, it's explained, and then he illustrates it. And then we come into chapter 3, and this is kind of rough. Maybe beginning in verse 11, kind of through the end of the chapter, he deals with, with loving each other again. Remember, as we came to 1 John chapter 3, we talked about what it means to hate my brother and what it means to love my brother. John talks about both. In verse 14, he says, we know, this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, dwelling in him, remaining in him. The person who hates his brother is the person who engages in that relationship with his, his or her brother or sister in Christ, instead of sacrificially, they engage in that relationship self-centeredly. And as I engage in my relationship with you in a self-centered way, I'm on the pathway towards murder. Or I guess you could put it this way, the same heart that resides, or heart attitude that resides in a murderer is the same heart attitude that resides in the heart of one who hates his or her brother or sister in Christ. It's a self-centered focus to the relationship as opposed to a sacrificial relationship that God calls us to have as we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so John goes on in 1 John 3, and he talks about what it means to love my brother. What does it mean to love my brother? Well, he says uh, this in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what is what does love look like? What's the biblical definition of love? John says the biblical definition of love is a person laying down their life, sacrificially giving of themselves for the eternal benefit of another. That's what love looks like. That, that's what it means to love my brother or sister in Christ. That brings us to kind of the third section, the, the section we've been in the last four weeks. 
the section that begins in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And as we've been through this, this passage, we've seen a lot about love. We've, we've talked about love's source, how it comes from God. We've talked about love's witness, the, the witness that love provides both to believers and unbelievers. And we've talked about the confidence. We talked about this last week, the confidence that love gives us. And that brings us this morning to 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, where we're talking about love's necessity. And as I mentioned before, John isn't going to say really anything in these three verses that he hasn't either said already or implied in some way. I'm not going to say something this morning and you're going, wow, Daniel, uh, we've never covered that before. What an amazing truth. These things that we're going to talk about here in these three verses are are themes that, that we've covered in some way already. So why does God have John write these things here in these verses? We see John's audience was not as spiritual as you and me. Uh, John's audience there in the first century still struggled with love. After all John had said about love that we've covered the last few weeks, John's audience, less spiritual than you and myself, still struggled with love. And of course, I'm speaking very tongue-in-cheek there, right? What God understood that John's audience needs is the same thing that God understands that you and I need. And that's another reminder of the absolute necessity of love in our relationship with him and in our relationship with others. After our message last week about the confidence that love provides there might be a temptation that faces us. And it might be a temptation that faces us even not after message, like last week where we talked about love's confidence. And, and that temptation is to say, you know, um, I've been saved. I, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and, and therefore I'm secure, and, and I don't really need to be all that concerned with love. I mean, I know I need, I need to love, but if I, if I see areas of my life where love isn't, God will forgive that. It's not that big of a deal. And so as I I think about my relationship with my kids, and sometimes my behavior towards them is not very loving, yeah, that's not a great thing, but not that big of a deal. Or I think about my relationship with my spouse, and there's a moment in that relationship with my spouse where there's tension in that relationship, and I think, well, I know this probably isn't God's ideal thing, but it'll eventually work out, or, or God will forgive me, and so it's okay for me to harbor this resentment toward my spouse right now for this moment or this day or this week or whatever. What I want us to see is that God believes something very differently. Then the heart of a believer, and again, this isn't anything new that we haven't said before, but God knows that you and I need to hear it again. In the heart of a believer, sacrificial love, voluntarily laying down my life for your benefit, isn't something optional. It's something that is absolutely vital and necessary. Now, why must I love others? 
I want us to look at three reasons here, one reason in each of these verses, so three verses, three reasons why love in our relationships is absolutely, positively vital, why love is necessary. Here's the first reason. The first reason that I have to love others, that love is vital, is because of love's source. Look at verse 19 with me, and what does John write? He says, uh, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Now, there's, there's two truths that are here in this verse, and I want us to look at each of the truths that are in this verse. So we'll look at the first truth first and the second truth second, and then I want us to talk about the causal relationship between these two truths. So the first truth that John gives us in this verse, look at the text, what is it? It's, it's that we love. Now, there's no direct object there. Who is it that John is, is saying that we're loving? Well, perhaps he's talking about our, our specific love for God the Father or, or, or each other, but I, I think it's understandable to believe that, that both of those things are contained in that idea. We love, now who do we love? We love God and we love each other. That's what John has been talking about throughout First John. We love, that's a truth. John's belief is that in the life of a believer, a person whose heart has been transformed by the truth of the gospel, love is going to exist. That's the first truth. We love. It's this reality in a believer's life. We're going to pursue that definition of love we've talked about. We are going to sacrificially lay down our lives for the benefit of one another. That's the first truth. Now, what's the second truth there? Look again at the text. What does he say? We love because, here's the second truth, he first loved us. This ability that you and I have to love has a cause. And that cause is that God loved us first. That's the second truth, God loved us first. Now look in your Bibles if you want to keep your finger there in First John. Uh, there's two other texts I want us to think about as we think about this truth. Uh, one is back in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 describes this this. this God loving us first, this initiatory love. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul will say this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What is Paul telling us here? He's saying God's love, this love that came first, is an initiatory love. While we were sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God, God loved us. He gave us his son. Jesus Christ died for us in a moment while we were still sinners. He said, okay, well, he loved me first. It's, a, it's an initiatory love, but when did this love start? When, when I say that love sources in God and, and God loved me first, we, we love because he first loved us, how far back does God's love for me go? Turn over a couple other books to the book of Ephesians. There's a passage in Ephesians 1 I, I want to read to you. Something else Paul wrote. It's Ephesians chapter 1. And this is what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1. He's talking about how God should be blessed. 
Ephesians 1, in verse 3, talks about God being blessed. He's blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he comes in verse 4 and he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When did God begin to love you? He began to love you before the creation of the universe. So when we say that we love because he first loved us, that word first is a type of first beyond any other types of uses of the word first. We're talking about first in a completely different sense than any of us could ever say we've come in first or we've done, done something first. What God does is, is God... Before the creation of the universe, before the creation of time, before time begins, and there is when he chooses to love us. He doesn't look at us and say, okay, uh, there's Daniel, and that Daniel guy, he's, he's, kind of a, oh, he's kind of a little bit of a rascal. He's a sinner, but, but you know, he's got some good qualities. He's, he's trying his best, and so I'm going to decide to love him. I'm going to love him first, and then he's going to, to, to love me back. It's not that type of first. It's a type of first that comes before there are, there's any time. And so before I am even a, a possibility in, in the sense that there's a material world, before a material world begins, God loves me then, if, there is even a, if, if the word then is even an appropriate word to use to describe whatever it is before time begins. That's when God loves me. There's a, a book that I've just started rereading. I, I never finished it, but I started reading it, and I've started rereading it again. We'll see if I get through it this time. It's... It's called Ancient Faith and Modern Physics by a guy named Stephen Barr. And he talks about how in the early 20th century, really up in the 19, until 1950 or so, a lot of materialists, scientists who were materialists, who believed that the material world was all that there was, were reluctant. In fact, they would say they didn't even believe in a beginning to the universe. In 1959, there was a poll conducted among American astronomers and I think it was like two-thirds said they, they didn't believe that there had ever been a beginning to the material world, that, that it had been e- eternal in some sense. And the reason for that, Stephen Barr argues, is that to say that the material world had a beginning, to say that the material world began at some point, means that something outside the material world caused the material world to come into being. That's the conclusion these materialists drew in the early 20th century. And so there was a belief that the world was, was eternal, that matter was eternal, that ma- matter had no beginning and no end. There was no creator. There was no need for a creator because matter had always been. And then there becomes this irrefutable proof that no, the universe does have a moment of beginning. And as believers, you and I believe that, that God is the source of that beginning, that, that God is the one who is the creator God. God is the one who created time. And God is the one who, before time began, is the one who loved us first. And because it's true that we love because he first loved us, we can understand 
we can even have the, the, the possibility of understanding love. And that's what I want to talk about next. So we say the first truth is that, he lo- that we love. The second truth is that he first loved us now. And go back, go back one more. Sorry, Brock, I'm throwing you off there. Still here on love source. So he fir- we love. He first loved us. And now I want to talk about that word in between, that, that word because, right? That word because. What that means is that this first love that God had for us produces the love that we have for him and for one another. We love, he first loved us, and because he first loved us, we have the ability to love. Why is that? Well, God's love produces something. You go back here in 1 John chapter 4, and it talks about all the things that God's love does. God's love perfects us. God's love allows us to abide in him. There's this relationship that we have with God because God loves us first. His love also, and, and this is something that I think is important to, to think about here, and it's something I'm, I'm trying to, ra- to wrap my mind around a little bit here. When it says that we love because he loved us first, first of all, I think it's saying that, that there's something that his love produces in us. It, it changes us. It transforms us. And, and his love cannot help but, but produce love in us. So you love God because you first loved us. God loves you and, and, it, and it changes you. Things happen to you as a result of his love of you. But I think there's also a sense in which God's love for you, the fact that God loves you first, and I want to be careful how I say this, because I don't want us to apply this the wrong way. Because God loves you first, there's an obligation that resides upon you to love God and to love others. And here's why I want to be a little careful with that. That word obligation for some of us can carry some very negative connotations, right? You hear the word obligation and you think, okay, I, I need, I'm obliged to do this. I have to pay God back. I have to do something because God's done something for me. And so it's, it's obligation in a very negative sense. And that's certainly not what John is saying, not what God is saying through John here. A better picture, I think, is, is from Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable. It's, it's prompted by, by Peter asking Jesus how often he needs to forgive his brother. And he says, do I need to forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no, I say to you uh, seven ti- times, 70 times seven. And then he gives this parable, and this is Matthew 18, verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents and Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And so the servant owes his master an amount that he can never hope to repay him, not in multiple lifetimes. And his master responds this way, it says verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You know how the story goes, right? Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to to choke him, saying, 
pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you almost the exact same words that the servant had used to his master. And the first servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your father from the heart. Now, the story is absurd, right? There's a certain amount of absurdity to that story. What slave, having been forgiven an amazing debt, would would immediately turn around and and, and choke a fellow slave for owing him just a, a pittance? As I try to wrap my mind around what it means that because God loved us first, that's the source of love, we have this obligation to 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 love as well. As as I try to wrestle with that idea of obligation, here's what I'm thinking. Here's where I'm at. Those of us who have had our hearts transformed by the gospel, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation, who have had our sins forgiven, understand, or at least begin to understand the great debt that we owe God. Think of, of Brian's testimony that, that he gave earlier as he talked about just that, that process of confessing each of his sins to God and just the enormity of, of being confronted with, with all of those sins. And the same would be true for each of us if we began to do that, right? What happens in the heart of a believer is, is he or she places their faith in Christ and their heart is transformed by this good news of, this, of the gospel. That there's a realization that should take place. There should be, in the heart of a believer, a new ethical sense that would be pained by inconsistencies in their own life. And so as I consider the great debt that I have been forgiven, there's a pain as I realize my inconsistencies in, in, in failing to love others as God has called me to love them. And so when we say, why must I love others? And this first answer we get is because of love's source. What we say is, okay, God, the, the source of the love that I say, claim to have is God. God's love is an initiatory love. It's a love that loves me first. It's a love that compels me both by the power of that love to be transformed and by the ethical obligation to love others as I have been loved. There's a divine obligation upon me as a transformed creature to love you. I cannot help but do anything else. Why must I love you? Firstly, because of love's source. Because the love that I have comes from God. Here's the second reason. Here's the second reason. And we're going to talk more about the first and and second, and and the third one we're going to get more into next week. But here's the second reason. Because we're not idolaters. Okay? Because we're not idolaters. Why must we love because we're not idolaters? Listen to what John writes. And as he writes these things, he gives us a hard truth, and he gives us a theological reason. He says this in 1 John 4. This is verse 20. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If I say, here's the hard truth. First of all, hard truth and a theological reason for the hard truth. If I say, I love God, and yet I, I don't love my brother, the hard truth is I'm a liar. And so I, I, you look at my life, and I stand up here on a Sunday morning, and I say, uh, you know, Bethany Community Church, I just want to tell you, I love Jesus so much, and I love God, and, and I, I'm just in love with God. I, I testify to that, and then I, I hate Brock. What, what does Scripture say about me? It says I'm a liar. Now here's the theological, look at the text again. Here's the theological reason. Here's what John is saying. Here's, here's why this can't be. He says, here's a reason. Here's a reason that if I said, I love, stand up here and I say, I love God, I love Jesus, I love the Holy Spirit, and, and then I hate Brock. Here's why it says I'm a liar. I'm a one who's intentionally asserting what's contrary to fact. He says, the reason is, if you don't love your brother whom you've seen, you cannot love God whom you've not seen. Remember the source of God's love. It's from God himself, and this, this love is a transformative love, and all the other things we've, we've learned about love as we've gone through First John. You can't, here's the truth, guys, you can't hate a visible brother and love the invisible God. In other words, I think what John is saying is this. It's very easy for me to say I love a God whom you can't, you can't look at, you can't see, you can't feel. You, you have no idea. I can stand up here and say I love God. I love reading my Bible and I fast. I love fasting. I love tithing. I love going to church and singing songs. And I just love Jesus. And you have no way of, of, of checking the heart there. But you know what you can see? You can watch how I treat this guy Brock that I hate so much. I love, I love Brock, but. He's doing the PowerPoint. What, you, know. you, you watch and you say, man, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel sees Brock in need and does nothing. Daniel finds out about a, a difficult situation that, that Brock is in in life and does absolutely nothing. There's, there's a, a self-centeredness to Daniel's relationship with Brock and other Christians. I, I don't get it. If you can look at your relationships with other people who are visible, who are flesh and blood, who are physical beings and living in the material world and your heart is closed to them, and, and yet you can go around saying, I love God, I love God. John says, hey, uh, bad news, you're a liar. You don't love God. Maybe you're a liar because you've deceived yourself. Maybe you've been deceived by, in this, these cases, false teachers. But the, the, the sad truth of the matter is, uh, you don't love God. And everyone can see your selfish behavior and, and you can't fake it and so stop claiming to love God. My claims to love God must be false if my relationships with others are not marked by sacrificial love. So what's the implication? What's the implication if 
my relationships with other people are not, not marked by love, and yet I still go around claiming to love God. So you look at my relationship with Brock, not love, and yet I say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. What, what, what's the implication? Not only am I a liar, but I would argue that what's happening in my life is that I've, I'm practicing idolatry. I've fashioned some, some God for myself that allows me to live life however I desire to live. And, and if I was worshiping the true God, that worship of the true God would absolutely, because of love's source, manifest itself in loving relationships. And so here's the conclusion I must draw if I am engaged in hateful relationships or relationships not marked by sacrificial love, the only conclusion that I can reasonably draw is that I'm not worshiping the true God, I'm practicing idolatry. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it, let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. That's the true God. And then God begins to describe idolatry. He talks about how a, a person fa- who fashions idols is, is very foolish. An ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, he says in verse 12. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down this tree, talks about it, and then verse 15 he says, Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And then he makes an idol and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and the other half... Or over half of it, he burns in the fire. He eats meat, he roasts it, he's satisfied, he warms himself. And the rest of it, verse 17, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. And Isaiah is saying that is absolute foolishness. There is only one God. a person claims to love this invisible God and yet cannot demonstrate visible love to others, they're an idolater. How do I know that I'm in right relationship with God? One of the ways is by my sacrificial love for others. Why must I love other believers? Because I'm not an idolater. I'm not worshiping some fake God in the sky. I'm worshiping the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who from before time says this is how it's going to be and then it happens. Now now let me say a word to kids. I know we have a lot of extra kids in here. Uh, this morning. Good job, guys, sticking with it. 
kind of, I think. Uh, parents, you can tell me later. Where are my kids? Okay, I don't even know where my children are. There's two of them. Um, they're always waving. Thanks. Here's just a word to kids and, and to, to all of us, right? You know, kids, uh, sometimes we make, we, we pray a prayer to ask God to forgive us for our sins, to, to trust in Jesus, and we pray that prayer, right? And, and parents, as we hear our children respond in faith, I think there's a right amount of excitement we should have, but, but I think this truth, this truth of the person who loves God is going to love their brother and sisters, a, a truth that is a great cha- should be a great challenge to siblings, right? So, you know, kids, you say, I, I love God, and yet you hate your sister or brother, or you fight with them, and you, you there should be a question say, hey, these two things don't go together. How can I say I love God and yet at the same time hate my brother and sister? And, and kids, what I'd say to you is the same thing I'd say to your parents and to myself is that if that truth doesn't bother you, if, if that inconsistency doesn't bother you, the fact that I say I love God and yet I treat my brother and sister badly, if that doesn't bother you, there, there's a problem. In other words, if you can say, well, yeah, I hate my brother. I'm okay with that. John would say, you're not worshiping the real God. And parents, uh, I would just really encourage you to to challenge your children with that truth. As as a child begins to make a profession of faith, and yet you don't see a transformed heart in relationship to their siblings, or at least a desire to to transform that heart, then then there's an issue. In our family, you know, we we talked about this even yesterday. I said, you know, kids, uh, on Thursday, too, we got together and said, hey, guys, you know, this is our profession of faith. This is what we've proclaimed to believe. We say we believe in this invisible God. We we say the God who has no form except the form of God the Son. Here's what the Bible says about loving each other. Do we want to do this? Do you want to do this? And and if if a child has a very hard heart and says, I have no desire to love my brother or sister. I have no desire to honor my parents. I have no desire for my relationships to be, be characterized by love. That, that's, that's idolatry. And you need to repent, right? We're not idolaters. Why must I love? Well, I'm not an idolater. I've, I've come into a relationship with the true God, and I have no, no choice but to love others because of the type of love God has given. Now, here's the last thing, and again, um, I kind of debated, does this go with next chapter or this chapter? I, I wanted to kind of introduce it here because I, I think it's related to what we're talking about. But then he's going to kind of, it's going to go into the next chapter as he talks more specifically about commandments. But here, let me just kind of throw it out here. Here's the third reason we must love. We must love because it's commanded. God commands us to love. Sometimes our emotions may not feel like being obedient. Sometimes we're going to struggle with, I don't know if I can be obedient here. Here's here's the simple truth. Despite our limited knowledge, our corrupt reasoning, our emotional obstacles, our our sometimes just just messed up ways of thinking, we can always look back in Scripture and say, hey, what has God told me to do? And here's what it is. Verse 21, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must, must also love his brother. You say, Daniel, I don't feel like it. Sometimes Daniel, I don't understand. Sometimes I don't feel like my love comes from God. Da, 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 this, emotional obstacle, blah, blah, blah. Hey, just boil it down to verse 21. Must I love my brother? Yes, God says so. It's a commandment. God commands us, 
be in loving relationships with one another. Love is not an optional part of the life of the believer. Love is an absolute necessity. But the God who has loved us before time began has called us to engage in these type of loving relationships. It's truths we've covered already as we've gone through 1 John, but truths we need to be reminded of again and again and by God's grace implement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us, this love that is undeserved, that is rich, that is lavish, that, that pours out upon us despite our, our sinful nature and uh, the, the, the old self that, that still we're struggling to, to live in accordance with. And we pray that by your grace, working in our hearts, we'd be transformed and, and grow more and more into who you've created us to be in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.